This is Pastor Nathan Kirk, and I am so glad that you have decided to make Greater Life a part of your day by tuning in to the message that you're about to hear. We here at Greater Life are a group of people that are passionate about living for Christ, as well as service one to another. From our worship services, classes, and messages, we strive to love and serve with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I hope you enjoy the message you're about to hear, that it is a blessing to you, and that in turn you may be a blessing to others. If you're searching for a church to call your home, I encourage you to join us here at Greater Life. Does anybody have just a real quick recap of the brazen altar? What is that all about? Or what are some of the key points of the brazen altar? Why is that so important? It's the largest. So what, what, was, the, what was the point? That was the point that was brought up. So why, why is that important? All the other uh, furniture pieces can fit inside of the brazen altar because the brazen altar is a form of repentance dying out to sin dying out to self and it takes a while to go through your life and to repent that's so good all right we've recapped the brazen altar Thank you, Brother Langer. <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, all of you are like, good, saved us some time. No, that's very good. Very good. But can you say that one more time? There was no sin that that altar was not big enough to cover. Um, Brother Marshan, can you bring that back to Sister McGowan? Because I think this is a great opportunity for us to hear a little bit more on that. I'm just going to hold my peace. Thank you. Sorry, what was that? What was that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you said it. You can't. <laughs> oh, can you expand on that a little bit? It was right at the entrance, meaning don't bother going any further without taking care of what's inside, getting all that garbage out. Nothing is too big or too small that God can't take care of, that God can't forgive. So good. And the, and the importance is we have to put it on the altar. The reality, church, is this, is you cannot progress to the next stations and the next levels. You cannot progress in your closeness with the Lord until you address these issues. This was a stepwise progression, step by step by step. And if you want to move forward and continue to make progress, you will have to address this. If you don't address this, what will happen is you will die. That's not just like scary preaching. That's like Bible. We're going on to the labor of water and the significance of this, but I want to read this uh, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 20 and 21. It says, when they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. And when they come near the altar to minister to burn offerings made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and feet that they die not. Exodus 30, 20 and 21. 
there's an importance here that we have to understand is that you remember in Genesis, um, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will, you'll surely die. They ate of that fruit, and did they die? Death entered. Pro- the progression of death entered. And especially for Adam, who lived to be, I can't remember how old, but like hundreds of years old, that was a very slow, progressive death. There is the idea of an immediate death that takes place. We can understand and read that from Scripture, but also there is the slow, progressive death that takes place. The death that says, I got away with it. I guess I can probably, I probably don't have to do this anymore. I guess it's not really a priority anymore. And there is a callousing of our hearts that begins to take place when we can, let me just say this, when you come to, uh, I, I, used to I used to play uh, instruments, I used to be a musician to an extent, not a very good one, but I used, to be, I used to play instruments, and if I could get away with not practicing, you know, that feels pretty good, right? Until it doesn't. Until it becomes obvious. And it's like, you're, you're playing jazz and everyone else is playing gospel. And like, there's some overlap, but you're not getting it. Right. It becomes obvious. And you can get away with stuff for a while until it becomes obvious. And this is really part of the death is we can get it. We, as, as Christians, we can get away with stuff for a while until it all of a sudden becomes very obvious. So we go through this process Let's deal with it. Let's, because when you're always trying to get away with stuff, you know what you're always doing? The Bible says in Proverbs that the guilty are always looking over their shoulders. They're always looking over their shoulders. Somebody recently um, that I've been working with that does not attend church yet, he's not saved yet, but he sent me a, a text message that he was not happy, like it was very heated in a text message out of nowhere. I'm like, whoa, that caught me off guard. Anybody ever get one of those before? <laughs> and, and, um, and then he was very remorseful about it. And then he did what I like to call an accidental text on purpose. You know what that means? where you send somebody a text message that, was, that you know you're sending it to the wrong person, but then you come back around and say, oops, that was meant for somebody else, my bad. Nobody here's ever done that. <laughs> but what he's doing is testing the waters to see if we're still friends. <laughs> and what that means is he felt guilty, so I, you got to go back. He feels guilty. And so he's looking over his shoulder and wondering, did I, is this even a safe conversation to have anymore? Thankfully, you know, we, we, we hash it out and it's, everything is groovy. Um, it would be great if we could advance without having to look over our shoulders. Because while you're looking over your shoulders, that's when the enemy comes in. And the enemy is, a, is pulling out all the stops to try to, to try to disrupt what the Lord is doing. We're not going to let him do that. The laver of water, Exodus chapter 30, I need to hasten tonight. Exodus chapter 30, verse 18. Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass 
to wash with all. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water within. Leviticus chapter 8 and 6 says, Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. The second station in the tabernacle, after we enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and after we go through repentance at the um, brazen altar, the second station within the tabernacle was the laver. There's not much details within Scripture about the physical makeup of this, but the entire structure was made out of brass. And with that, one of the things that happened when you fill it with water is that brass acted, at that in those times, brass acted like a mirror. That was a mirror that you could see yourself in. We know where we're going with this. This book is a mirror. James chapter 1 tells us, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, if you just listen but don't do, he's like a man beholding or looking at his face in the glass, in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and immediately forget what manner of man he was. But if you look into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein, not just being a forgetful hearer, but also a doer of the work, you shall be blessed in your deeds. This word will tell you who you are if you read it and look into it. You'll begin to read some things, and it's very easy to read the Bible and very easy to, to hear maybe preaching or teaching and to think of other people. But what this is saying is, no, 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 stop thinking of other people and look and find yourself in there. And you'll read things in the Psalms and the Proverbs that you're like, okay, that's really good. But then when something sticks out, you're like, oh, that's me. That's me right there. That's got me all over it. But the takeaway from this is two parts. One, it's to help you see um, the, the things that need to be washed from you. Yes, but it's also there to remind you who you are. To remind the priest, you're a priest. And you might feel like you're unworthy, which you are, but it doesn't matter. You're still called to be this priest. You're still called for this purpose. So when you read the Bible, it's not always about finding the negative things that, that you need to wash from yourselves. It's also a reminder of who you are in Christ. Your sons and daughters of the Most High God. Stop forgetting that, right? This says you read it and you walk away and forget who you are. Stop forgetting that you're sons and daughters of God. So they wash themselves, and they must wash themselves unless they die. Unless they die. It's so significant through the washing of the word that we are cleansed. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. The altar is where we die, and we die to the will of our flesh in repentance. The laver is where we are washed in baptism. You must repent. You must be baptized. But we need to then proceed to the holy place. For the holy place, as we proceed into that, there were five pillars. Now, if you followed um, Brother Mangan's teaching on this, he would say that the five pillars, and he does say that the five pillars represent uh, from Isaiah where it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's, that's what he attributes those five pillars to. Outside of him attributing those five pillars to that, I can't find anywhere in Scripture where it, it definitely denotes that. So I can't say that's absolutely it. Um, people said this, how many stones, do you remember how many stones David picked up? Five. And so I heard really good, like when I was young, I heard preaching like, and when you have J-E-S-U-S, you're yeah, like, that's not even like, that's not, you can't do that to me. You can't do that to David. He had Jesus. No, he didn't. He had five rocks. <laughs> Just because there's five doesn't like, you reach for all kinds of things here. <laughs> so I don't know about that. The rock is, the, yeah, the singular rock, the cornerstone, and he wasn't throwing no cornerstone, just to be clear. <laughs> uh, so I'm not taking any way, anything away. I mean, if that's how you want to pray and you want to talk, uh, call on the Lord, um, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and you want to proceed through like that, Hey, you do you. That's fine. But we're not going to say that this is doctrine and this is how we have to do it. But Psalms 104 says, I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts. Right? The court is the inner part. The gate is where you pass through. But now we're going into the court, which is closer to intimacy. And we go in with praise. We're not yet in the holy of holies. So we do this thing. We did it on Sunday. We sang about, um, we sang, I think we sang throne room, right? And I don't know all the words off the top of my head, but the veil is torn, the doors. Is it swing or fling? <laughs> the doors, they go wide. They open wide. Why can't we just say that? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> they, they open up. And how's it go? I see Gloria. As I run inside the throne room before you, I jump around and go crazy. No, 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 no. Like I bow. I bow. I bow. Right. Energy is important. Praise is important. Enter his courts with praise. But as you get closer to the Lord, and you get into his presence, and you get into a depth of his presence, all of a sudden, as he is, the more that he is revealed to you, the more of us that it's really not our energy that we glory in. It's reverence. What did John the Revelator do? How did he react when Jesus was revealed to him? He fell on his face like he was dead. Right. 
So this is just a little help for us tonight. When we sing those songs about kneeling before his presence and actually kneeling and bowing, it is wholly appropriate to actually bow. It's not just okay. You should try it. It might do something for you in here. I'm really good at jumping and dancing. Okay, great. High five. You do that thing. We'll, we'll, we'll sing that bridge another time, Sister Molly. Like, we'll, we'll get it going, right? But, but when it comes to bowing, we, I don't, that's not very spiritual. It is extremely spiritual because it brings you down to where we belong in his presence. And he doesn't leave us. The beauty is he doesn't leave us there. He, he brings us close. He draws us closer. It's so beautiful. Anyway, I have to hurry. The golden candlestick is what we, oh, we go through the gates. Um, you shall make uh, Exodus 27, 37. You shall have five pillars of, I like to say acacia wood, anyway. Um, just, um, <laughs> and overlay them with gold, and their, their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five sockets or the base of brass for them. Gold is purity. Gold represents purity. Brass represents judgment. And five, if there was a symbol um, in numerology, five would be symbolic of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, let me turn there, that we should come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You don't progress out of fear. You don't progress out of arrogance. But there's a boldness knowing that I took, place, took care of what I needed to take care of at the altar. I, I've been washed. I've been washed and cleansed. And now with boldness, I can approach the throne of grace, and I can pass through and receive grace and mercy in my time, in your time of need. The next station that we come to is the golden candlestick. Exodus 25, verse 31, you shall make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. The shaft and the branches of this bowl, the knots and its flowers shall be of the same, and six branches shall come out of each side of it, and three branches of the candlestick out of one side, the three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. It's very specific instructions. Psalm chapter 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. One of the significant things when you enter into this part of the tabernacle is that there is no more daylight. And the only light that can be seen is the light from the candlesticks. And it burns with oil. oil, The oil and anointing representing the Holy Spirit. And if if you've ever been in a a room that has a a fire in it, does anyone, you have, any of your families have like wood stoves in your house? And does it ever get, like, a little smoky in there? You can tell it's okay, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Not. Brother Sam's like, nope, not in my house. We burn it clean. Like, okay, confession. I, I've smoked people out of my house before. Like, 
I've done a Bible study. I thought it was so clever. Like, we're going to do a Bible study down here in my office. And we did a Bible study, and it was so smoky. And I was just like, oh, I can't read a thing because it, it, was, it was a sign. The smoke is a sign that the fire is going out. The smoke is a sign that it's not burning clean, right? If you're in this little room and something about that candlestick is out of balance, it will not burn clean, and it will be smoke. And smoke represents too much humanity and not the purity of the fire. We pray all flame, no smoke. Take us out of the picture. Take humanity. Use us as you will, Lord, but take our humanity out of this picture. We don't want any smoke because smoke will stifle things. Smoke will suffocate. Smoke will uh, stifle your progress. Too much humanity. You can get this far and still have an imbalance of humanity. And so we pray and we ask that there, we say, Lord, just help there to be no um, no smoke. We want purity. We want the purity of the Holy Ghost. We want the purity of the moving of God's Spirit. Can I, can I just say this tonight? We need in our services, in our gatherings, in our home church, when we have breaking of bread together, we need the purity of the Holy Ghost. Next time you, we have a breaking of bread and we're at homes together and you're in somebody else's ho- house, it's not just a meal. We need the purity of the Holy Ghost to move in those settings. Let's get humanity out of the way. Some of the greatest gatherings that we have together is when humanity gets out of the way. And we allow, not some of, those are the greatest gatherings. And is there still music that we play? Yep. Is there still worship? Yep. Is there still preaching sometimes? But the point is this. We can still have all those things and still have a dynamic move of the Holy Ghost if we get man out of the way. So the lamp allowed the priest, the high priest, to see because there was no other source of light. The lamp was to burn continually. No break. We don't get a vacation. (laughs) When we went on vacation um, recently, we went to church. And somebody said to us when we visited, they said, I'm surprised you went to church on vacation. And I said, I don't want God to take a vacation on me. So I'm going to go to church on vacation. Plus, I like church. <laughs> Weird. Amen. The, what fueled the lamp was pure oil. After this, uh, after coming into this holy place, the priest would then transition to the table of showbread. We're past the gate, entering into his gates with thanksgiving. We're past the brazen altar, spending significant time in repentance. We've stopped at the laver of water, cleansing ourselves with the word of God. We've entered into the inner court with praise. We are now in the inner court where there's no natural light. It's only the light from the golden candlesticks. It is a holy place. The inner court was also referred to as the holy place. It was not yet the holy of holies, but it was the holy place. In Scripture reminds us you can't even, if you're not clean and ready for it, you can't even get to the holy place without dying. We think that it's just the holy of holies. Nope. It's even in this atmosphere. 
And the reason why, if maybe you feel like, man, re- recently the, the preaching or the teaching has really been a lot of like getting stuff out of us. The reason why, and I, I talk to the, I've talked to the Lord about this a lot. Like, Lord, I want to preach something more uplifting. Like, I want to preach blessings and, and like all those great things. I want to preach something where people will like me when I get done preaching. Like, instead of like him again, oh, I got to go, like, more repentance, like, more dying to myself. Like, I'm tired of preaching this message. And the Lord is like, yes, but if you want to move forward, we got to get this stuff out. I was going to preach this on Sunday, but I'll just insert this here. Some of you are facing giants. You ready for this? You ready? If you're facing giants that previous generations should have killed. Yep. You're facing giants that somebody, you're facing somebody else's battles. I thought, I thought they were supposed to take care of these things. How did they let them all survive? We're reading the book of Joshua, and in the book of Joshua, at the end of it, most of those nations that were supposed to be driven out, guess what? They're still there. The Philistines, they're still there. The, the Amalekites, they're still there. So you fast forward to Saul and David's time. Saul sits in while Goliath is on the other side of the valley taunting God's people. He sits in his tent quivering in fear. This is something somebody else should have taken care of. Joshua should have taken care of. Caleb, maybe Caleb should have done these things. What am I going to do? David steps on the scene, and he says, he doesn't play into any of that. He says, this giant's no match. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's defying the armies of God in our God? We don't need, look, you may be facing stuff that previous generations should have taken care of, and I'm sorry that, it, that you have to face it. But the power and the authority that you have in the Holy Ghost is not diminished and it's not weakened or lessened by any enemy that exists. Just because they're there and they have a deeper, uh, deeper roots than they should have doesn't mean that we can't still uproot them and cast them into the fire. So, yes, you may be facing things that previous generations should have, could have taken care of. But today, this kingdom generation of our youth and our elders and everybody in between, this kingdom generation is taking care of business today. Amen. So, the table of showbread. There are no influences now in the holy place. There are no distractions there. This is just now getting into a closeness and intimacy with you and the Lord. It's where everything else is shut out. Can you imagine getting away, everything else being shut off and quiet, and you and the Lord? 
Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 30, gives us the instructions and the dimensions for the table. I won't go into all of that tonight for time's sake, but it's made out of pure gold. It's another pattern given from God. It was not a golden instrument. It was a a wooden table overlaid with pure gold. It was the same wood that the brazen altar and the altar of incense are made out of. It's the same wood that the Ark of the Covenant, except for the lid, which was solid gold, but it's the same wood that the Ark of the Covenant was made out of. On the top of the table of showbread, or literally face bread, was the bread of presence. The bread of presence. Scripture also refers to it as consecrated and holy bread. The Levites were responsible for preparing it, which would only be eaten on the Sabbath. They were responsible for exchanging it with one another on that day. There were 12 loaves of bread on the table, which represented fellowship and satisfaction. And it was meant to represent the 12 tribes, which is a completeness of God's people. You know why fellowship is so important? It's because when, we're, when you're not a part of it, we're missing something. You might say, well, I, I don't really play an important role, or I don't have a position It's not about position. It's about the body. And when you're not a part of it, we're missing something. Young people, when you're on a a youth uh, weekend, whether it's winter retreat or um, conquer, and they have services on Sundays, which is like, why would you even do that? But whatever, I'm not on the youth committee. So, But anyway, um, when you're not here and you're at those retreats, guess what? We don't, the old people, you know, them, right? Um, they don't sit here and they're like, woo, I can't believe they're finally gone. Let's just party. Like, your parents probably do that at home, but that's not the point. Like, we're like, man, we miss our young people. Like, we miss, we miss, you're our people. We miss you. And you're stuck with us, so sorry. But we miss you. And when you're gone, we miss you. You, the rest of you. Like, we, you're part of this body, and you say, well, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Stop that. Stop saying that you're not. Okay, well, I feel the Holy Ghost. So even if you're part of the body, so get over it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> you're in a better place than I am right now, so you go ahead. <laughs> Receive it. Let's pray. No, um. Jesus said this, he said in John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. In John 6.51, I am the living bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This bread represented the fellowship for the priests, and it does the same thing today. This table of showbread goes back to the word of God and the scriptures that give you strength to sustain you. Scriptures like Isaiah 54 and 17, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is a heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Or Romans chapter 8, verses 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famineness or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that has loved us. When, you, when you're having a struggle or a hard time, sometimes you need words like that. Not just encouraging words that are spoken to you by, uh, by a fortune cookie testimony. What I'm talking about is the strength and the power of the word of God. I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels or principalities or powers or thing present, things to come, height, depth, any other creatures shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or I know the thoughts I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then you shall call upon me, you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken to you. You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Over and over again, the sustaining word of God is what sustains us. But as we are at the table of showbread, It is not the bread that is the instrument in the tabernacle. It is the table. It's the table. The table was designed to hold and support the bread. To to be there to to hold and support it. And the question is, who does that for us in our lives? Now, you might say, well, that's really self-serving because the pastor does it. Yeah, okay, yes. Yes. That's my job. I better do that. But beyond that, who does that for us in our lives? If we relegate the ministry of the word to one man, we are in danger. Minister the word one to another. That requires two parts. It requires one person to minister it, but it also requires somebody else to receive it. Has anybody ever spoken to you and said, I have a word for you? Yeah. And sometimes that word is really great. Sometimes it's like, ooh, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> um, but what I'm talking about is when somebody says, no, I, I have a, I have I have this, this word for you. Like, I was praying, or I was thinking about you, and I was praying for you, or I was reading this, and this came to my mind. I, wanna, I have something that I think will minister to you. When somebody has the word of the Lord to deliver to you, their job is not to micromanage you. Their job is to deliver it. Our job is to receive it, take that to the Lord, and say, Lord, does this resonate anywhere? Sometimes it will. I'll be, I'll be honest, sometimes it won't. Sometimes that person just got a little overzealous, and they just came back from a conference, and they're like, I've got a word for everybody. You know, like, okay, well, no, you don't. Like, you don't. Like, just calm down. But in sincerity, try that spirit and see if, see if it's from God. There, hopefully our motives in, in what we talked about on Sunday, hopefully our motives in our, our relationship with each other is Growing and developing to the point where we can share and receive words from one another. You know what I would really love is words to be shared with one another that are exhorting one another. I think that book, this book tells us that we should do that. Encouraging one another. Even challenging one another to good works. To good works. Yeah. 
well, who do they think they are? And so it's the table. And, it's, and we pray for those that, are, that have that role, but the prayer is also this, Lord, let me be that table as well. Help me to be somebody that can share a word with somebody. Um, we're moving on. The altar of incense. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 1, make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. This altar was standing about three feet high, each side measuring 18 inches. It was covered with gold, with four horns on the corners, four golden rings to make it portable. Revelation chapter 8 references this altar. It says, And an angel came and stood by at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. The tabernacle system was previously highlighted in in last week's lesson as a reflection of heaven. And Revelation brings context for some of the correlation between the tabernacle and heaven and the connection with the events on earth. And it further draws parallels between the incense going up to heaven as the prayers of the saints before God. There is a time where we have to recognize the significance of the prayers of the saints. And here's, the signif- here's one of that, the significant things tonight. Um, and I would, I, would, I would reach to our elders tonight. That church, we need to recognize and support and I think be grateful for our elders. Because for many years, for many years, it would, be, it would have been easy to say, you know what? Ah, we don't need to continue with this. There have been lots of movements that have come through. There have been lots of winds of doctrine that have blown through, but they have been stable and steady and faithful, and we are standing on the foundations that they helped us, that they built for you today and for us today. Yeah. We should be grateful and thankful for the prayers of the saints. Thank you, elders. And, it, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to identify who you are. You can self-identify with this. But thank you, elders. Thank you, saints, for prayers, for faithful and consistent prayers. That's what we need. And sometimes we can get a little emotional about, especially when you're younger, you can get a little bit emotional because the only thing you see when you're younger is now. But elders have perspective. They say, well, we prayed about that. We, we can handle that. The Lord is going to bring us through that. And you go, well, wow, the world is going, no, no, no. The God's in control. He's got this. It, the, the elders can bring perspective. And so it's the prayers of the saints that center us and help ground us. Thank you, saints. Thank you, elders, for your prayers. The last piece here before we enter into the Holy of Holies is the veil. Now, you've probably heard some study on this, so I'm not going to go too far into this. 
But John 14, 6 says this. Jesus speaking, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You have to go through the veil. You have to go through Jesus. The veil, as we know, or maybe we don't, so we'll say, we'll just explain this, was one continuous piece across that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies, right, is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. The priest stands on this side of the veil. And what you see in this image is the priest all dressed in white. Leading up to this, um, let me see if I can grab a picture here. I have one. No, I'm sorry, I don't. Leading up to this, the priest has had on his priestly garments, his robe and the, um, the ephod and with all the stones, that, the beautiful stones that are on it, his hat, like he had everything, like he was decked out as the high priest. When you get to that final place, you are shedding all of your role and your position and your identity, and you are coming purely before the Lord saying, this is all I got. I, I, all of my identity, my role, like whatever we think is important about our identity is shed and laid aside. We come purely before the Lord. The, the high priest stands in front of the, in front of the veil, and this veil on it is an angel. An angel. And I've mentioned this in previous studies, but the last place that we hear about an angel guarding anything is at the door of the Garden of Eden. And so this direct correlation is made that the angel guarding the door to Eden, or the entry into Eden, had a sword in his hand and would kill anybody that came through or that tried to get through there. Like, not a good place to be. This angel is standing there, and, I, and this is just me tonight, but it's a reminder of what you're about to go into. You're about to go into something so serious. And here's the thing, uh, church, like, I've seen people, I've, I've been around long enough, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not that old, but I've been around long enough, and I've seen enough things where I've seen people who play with the things of God, who mess around with Serious things of God, with holy and pure things of God. I've seen it enough to know that it is a dangerous fire to play with. Because God will not be mocked. He will not allow his name to be made mockery of. And I've seen where people will... Mock the th- openly mock the things of God. And it's a dangerous place to be. And you fast forward in their story. I'm just going to 
just trying to be a pastor tonight, but you fast forward in their story, and, and it's not life and life more abundantly. It is destruction and decay and chaos leading to death. It's terrifying. God always gives us a chance to turn around, so I, I understand that. And we want to embrace that. But the point is this. Let's not put ourselves in that position to need to turn around. If we do need to, thank God for his mercy and thank God for his grace. And he'll give us a, he'll, he'll, he's so good to us, but let's, let's take this seriously. Because they're standing before a very holy place. They're about to enter in. The question then becomes... How does the priest get through this veil? There was no seam or cut in the veil. It was, a, it was thick layers with no seam down the middle. When Jesus was crucified and he gave up the ghost, he cried out and gave up the ghost, the veil was torn down the middle from top to bottom, signifying that there was, no other, there was no seam there. It didn't say that it opened. It was torn. It had been one seamless piece. So how does the priest get through to the other side? Does he go under it? Does he go around it? Does he go over it? The answer is no. On the other side of this veil is the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. And on that box, that Ark, is the mercy seat. As the high priest, we're going to get to how he goes through, but as the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, there was no burning candle in there. It was the glory of the Lord that, that lit the room. Put yourself in that high priest position for a moment. And as you've passed through the veil, it's the, like there is no light there. There's no fire. There's, no, there's nothing, but it's the glory of God that is lighting this room. No natural light. And this ark was inside. <clears throat> On the Day of Atonement, they were brought to the priest, the high priest, two goats. Leviticus 16 is a reference for this. After the people cast their lots, one goat was slain. The other goat was dubbed the scapegoat. He was led into the wilderness so far away from the camp that it could not find its way back. It represented forgiveness insomuch that when God forgives your sins, they cannot track you back down to condemn you. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. 
Hebrews 8 and 12, for I will be merciful to the unrighteousness, to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews 10 and 17, their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions, and for my own sake I will not remember thy sins. The blood of the goat that was slain, however, was sprinkled on all the pieces of the furniture in the tabernacle. And he was, and now, as the priest has made his way through the temple or the tabernacle, he's ready to pass through the veil. The significance here, the veil, uh, Hebrews ten and nineteen. Let me read that. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. Let me slow down and read this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The veil was four inches thick. It was 30 feet tall and 30 feet wide. It was here in the Holy of Holies that the high priest would go beyond ceremony and beyond learning. Let me just say this, insert this point. We have to go beyond checking the boxes and our heart has to be in it. You cannot program your way and check all the boxes and hope to get to this point. There was a man that came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus started listing all the commandments, and he says, I've done all of those. I've kept the commandments from my youth. What he was saying is, I've checked all the boxes. Jesus said, there's one thing you, ha- you need to do then. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. I don't remember seeing that in the commandments, Lord. It's like, yeah, it's, it's more than just checking boxes. It's your heart has to be in it. We can become very good at checking boxes, but are we willing to forget all of the, go beyond, beyond ceremony and beyond learning and to actually desire to be drawn into the pure presence of the Almighty God where God would talk with you, give you direction and give you insight where he would strengthen you, where he would remove wrath and the heaviness of burdens. Amen. Do you, do you need this today? Do you need God to talk to you? Like if you haven't heard from the Lord for a while, like really heard from the Lord for a while, do you need him to talk to you? Or do you need direction and you need insight? Yeah, I think we would say yes. 
Do you feel like you need the wrath or the heaviness of burdens removed from you? Anybody? Yes. Amen. Where God would strengthen you and remind you of the power and the strength that comes with serving the one true God. Where he would empower you and send you back out to the people to represent him and to speak for him. Here we begin to see that God's mercy, which is just on the other side of the veil, his mercy is an immovable object which is reaching out for us. His mercy, it doesn't change. It's new, it's new every morning. But it doesn't change. He doesn't make exceptions and say, well, I'm not going to have mercy on you. No, his mercy is consistent. It's new every morning. I don't have time to go through this tonight because we need to come to a close. But when you get to that place in the tabernacle, now this is just me tonight, so just take this as just, as just me. Um, well, when you get to that place in his tabernacle, I believe that it, it is his mercy that draws you through. You don't walk through the veil. His mercy pulls you through. Where his, his mercy is representative of the desire that he has to restore relationship with us. And he sees that we've gotten as far as we can go. And he says, I'll do the rest. Draw nigh unto God, it says in James 4, 8, and he will draw nigh to you. When you begin to make steps towards God, he yearns to be closer with you. And his mercy extends beyond the natural into the supernatural and draws you closer to him where ceremony and learning and and institutionalism don't have any place. They can't pass through. Only you in purity with the Lord and relationship with him. Hebrews 6 and 19 says, which hope we have, hear this tonight, Here's why I believe this. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. Word picture. There is an anchor on the other side of the veil. And the point of an anchor is not just to stop you, the ship would lower the anchor until it caught on something, and then it would try to draw it back in, and it would draw the ship closer to whatever the ship was anchored to. You're getting this. There's an anchor anchored to that which is beyond the veil, and it's connected to you and pulling you closer to him. That's our hope that we have, to that which is anchored beyond the veil, sure and steadfast. He's pulling you closer. How can this be that a person would get through the veil? And how can, how can, you might say, well, that's impossible for a person to pass through, physically pass through a veil. You're right. It is impossible for us. I got good news for you, though. Jesus did it in John chapter 20. The doors were shut, they were locked, the disciples were together. And Jesus came and stood in their midst. 
And you say, well, okay, that kind of makes sense because it was Jesus. But here, understand this. Jesus had a physical body. He spoke. He was seen. He ate food. He offered to be touched by Thomas. His physical body. You say, that was Jesus. He was God and man. I don't think that anything like that can actually happen to humanity. Okay, well, let's go to Philip in Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Philip, when he explained the scripture to the Ethiopian eunuch, and as soon as he came out of the water, he was taken up and translated into Samaria. Well, that, that's, well, uh, but, uh, well, what? Well, what? Well, what? Well, it's this. God's mercy is so great, his mercy is so strong, that when the priest approaches the impassable veil and is still not able to find a way through, God's mercy extends as an anchor to that which is beyond the veil, grafts man, and pulls him through to the other side. God's mercy is so great that when Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, was slain for the sins of the world from the foundation of the world, he was on the cross, his flesh being torn open for us, and, his, and Christ's voice cried out, it is finished. The sacrifices, the ceremonies, the exclusions, and the barriers are finished. The same thing that the high priest encountered in the Holy of Holies is now accessible to one and all. So let's stand here tonight. There's There's a point for why we're going through this and why we're practi- why we're uh, practically applying this as a church. It's more than just something to fill our schedule and more than just a little more time, you know, other filler lessons to go through. But frankly, the point of why we're going through this is because we as a church, we as a church must corporately draw closer to God. Not just individually. We've had, we, we've had enough individual fires that go off. And you know what they do? They go out. Unified together with our youth, to our elders, and everybody in between this kingdom generation. Listen, if we are really going to do this thing, which we call the expansion of the kingdom, if we're really going to do this, we have to be unified together. And we can't just let the spiritual people do the spiritual stuff, and then we all get to go do the fun stuff. Oh, boy. We all, look, he's made this accessible to everyone. He's made this accessible to you today. And he wants to draw you closer to him. And it's going to take some work on our part. It's going to take some work on our behalf. And and, and the reason why we don't do this all the time is because it takes so much work. And our flesh doesn't like it. Fact, your flesh does not like to die. Your flesh likes to thrive and to expand. 
<laughs> it loves that. Your fle- our flesh does not like to die. But when we, when we decrease, when we submit and come into alignment with him, he will increase. And church, with unity, as we walk into this together, this is the way we will see his kingdom expand. This would be a fire that can't be put out. It's going to expand and it's going to grow in Jesus' name. So let us do this. We, it's, it's two lessons that went by very, it, very quickly, this probably two- or three-month series that could have been extended into, right? But it's two lessons that have gone by. And the point of this is to prepare us for stepping into this on Sunday evening. So what I would like to do is I would like to pray a prayer tonight where we commit ourselves in preparation. Maybe that means for the next few days, we prepare ourselves like priests, and we say, I want to be clean. I want to take, maybe, maybe you want to fast a day or three or four. Well, okay, but maybe fast a little bit. Maybe take a break from the socials a little bit. Maybe let's just take a step back and say, Lord, we're about to step into something very serious. And I don't want to just kind of nonchalantly approach this. I want to, as Joshua said, Joshua said to the people, he said, sanctify yourselves. So I can't do it for you. The Lord can't do it for you. You can do this. You can sanctify yourself. Set yourself aside to be pure for this work that we're, for this work and this experience that we're going to enter into together. So let's, I'm going to pray this prayer tonight, and I want us to pray together a prayer of commitment, Lord, that we're going to set ourselves aside for this, and we're going to engage in this fully. And let's pray together.